0: Well, hello, basketball
1: fans and Blazers Edge fans. Uh, we are here with a special version of the Blazers Edge podcast. For those of you who are used to hearing Dan Morango solo or me and Dia Miller team up, uh, I am here. I'm Dave Deckard, managing editor, of course, but in the greatest reunion since Macho Man Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth reunited in WrestleMania 7. I am here with Mr. Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. Of course, way back in the dark ages of the internet, Ben and I worked together on Blazer's Edge, and uh, Ben has since since gone on to amazing things, and he is here because he has penned a book called Bubble Ball Inside the NBA's Fight to Save a Season, all about the end of the 2020 uh, NBA year that we all just experienced. So, Ben, first of all, welcome how are things going
0: things are going very well i take it you're macho man randy savage though in that comparison did i did i get the roles right there
1: (laughs) (laughs) no i'll be miss elizabeth i mean she was cool oh my gosh she made that duo so
0: (laughs) well you know dave it's awesome to be back chatting with you um you know it's funny the book it's kind of a milestone thing uh, you know, I always saved my first uh, press credential that we got back in the two thousand seven two thousand eight season uh, when I was first covering games for Blazers Edge, and I always saved my first magazine cover and saved my first uh, you know newspaper front page and all those kinds of things. But one of the coolest things, you know, when I hit these milestones, is all the Blazers Edge fans who always hit me up and been like, "I'm fo- I've been following you since two thousand seven two thousand eight. I remember the draft Kevin Durant blog when you first uh, you and Dave first got together and." Um, you know, I remember reading the media row reports where I put those little random game notes from every single game about the signs in the audience and everything else like that. And nothing tickles me more than than hearing from those people because the book writing process was crazy, Dave. I mean, I was pretty much, uh, super late night. I know you're a night owl as well when it comes to writing, but it was just night after night for like basically two and a half months straight to try to turn this thing around, you know, in time to release it before these upcoming playoffs. And there was no better preparation for doing that than the media road reports, you know, where we're just trying to uncover every last detail about Sergio Rodriguez's 11 minutes that night or whatever it might have been back in that day. So uh, it's just awesome to to come full circle, and I appreciate you having me on.
1: Nate McMillan was a horrible coach because he didn't play Sergio Moore. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh.
0: Or Team Bayless versus Team Sergio. I mean, those (laughs) knockdown, drag-out fights. You know, it's one of the greatest civil wars in American history, I think.
1: Exactly, and the correct answer really ended up being kind of neither but yep. I mean, oh man yeah sure enough and the kicks i remember the kicks but let's 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 get to your book here uh for, and first of all i should say that i remember even back then year two or three at blazer's edge you were talking about writing uh, a book at some point and it is a herculean effort uh i, I have one self-published and that was that was a pain uh, i can only imagine getting it published uh, under official auspices and how much of a deadline that is but uh I've read uh, most of this here. It is fantastic. Just got it a couple of days ago and like called you right away. So let, let's start at the beginning. This is about the end of last season, of course, the unprecedented uh, advent of COVID-19 and the suspension of the season and the attempt to restart it in the summer, which had never been done. And all the negotiations and all the intricacies that went into it. And the first thing I gotta say is, first of all, I'm just blown away by how complex these things are that are described in your book. Because everybody on the outside says, well, come on, you you pay them several million dollars a year and it's it's their job, so you just tell them what to do and they do it and everybody comes together. But you've got uh, union concerns, you've got player personal concerns, and players are not monolithic that some people this means something different to than others. And you bring out like Carmelo Anthony versus your average NBA player. Uh, You have coaches and you have front offices and you have different franchises taking different views. And the league and their sponsors and the regional sports network talk to me a little bit about how what a miracle it is that that all came together and what do you perceive were the key issues and points uh, in making it work
0: No, I mean, you summarized that great. I mean, the the most powerful uh, piece of the entire thing was the need for revenue and the desire that, hey, look, if we don't figure out a way to save this season and we don't know how long this pandemic's going to end and we're not sure when we're going to be able to play games in front of lots of people in the future, everyone's paycheck is going to be hit. And that goes from Adam Silver all the way down to the guy on the veteran minimum contract. So there was a strong financial motive for everyone involved. But the Carmelo Anthony case was really interesting because, you know, him and LeBron James, they come in together. They're kind of forever linked. They're really close friends. And for a player like LeBron, he had all sorts of motivation to go to the bubble. He's trying to chase Michael Jordan's, uh, you know, championship rings tally. Um, obviously, you know, he's one of the premier players, if not the most famous player in, in the game currently. And so for him to to go down to the you know Disney world, he's playing on a team that's a championship contender. It makes all the sense in the world. But for Carmelo Anthony, where, you know, the Blazers were kind of on the outside looking in at the playoff picture at that point, he's made all the money he's ever going to be able to spend in his life. He has a family, um, as does LeBron. And, uh, you know, the incentives are just totally different. That That desire in the back of your head to say, you know what, I'm not totally sure the rewards here outweigh the potential risk. We don't know how the health part is really going to work. And And so, you know, there was a real hesitation, not only from, uh, you know, guys who weren't making a ton of money, but from a a player in Carmelo's situation who didn't really need the money to go do it. And you saw a number of players just skip out, you know, Bradley Beal uh, for the Washington Wizards decided not to go. Uh, You know, another player, Davis Bertans for the Wizards decided to sit out because he was an upcoming free agent, didn't want to get hurt and compromise his money. So to, for the, all the superstars to kind of come together who were healthy and say, hey, look, we're going to go and do this. We're going to put this show on. We think we can generate a lot of revenue and we trust the NBA just enough to keep us safe that we're willing to try it uh, took weeks and weeks, if not months of conversations between you know Chris Paul, the union leaders and the league itself. And as I'm telling the story in the book, a lot of it, you probably have noticed already, it's in first person. Now, it's not just like a memoir or anything like that. I mean, it's 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 a pretty reported book. But I wanted to give people a sense for the convers- conversations that I was weighing you know, for myself because I didn't want to go down there uh, after living in basically total isolation here in L.A. and living very safely and expose myself to a greater risk of the coronavirus, I was nervous that, oh, a player is going to break the rules, he's going to be the weakest link, and he's going to get everybody sick, and I'm going to be trapped in an environment where I won't be able to escape easily, and uh, potentially my risk is going to be greater, and so the NBA really had to be deliberate about how it constructed its rules um, you know, to, to keep the players separated from everyone else in the bubble, and then just to make sure that there was trust in the system from all parties, You know, media members, players, coaches, and everything else you remember some coaches didn't go some of the older coaches assistants um you know for, for medical reasons didn't go down there as well so i would just say the bubble was precarious and that word that you used miracle is right on i think it's going to age like fine wine dave i think there's going to be basketball fans you know your son uh, or maybe hey his his kids 30 years from now who are going to be like wait a minute they played for three months in disney world to crown a champion and why did they do this and there's going to be that curiosity factor So one of my main goals with the book was just kind of to explain how and why, and then what it was like on a day-to-day basis, because it's going to seem so weird the further we get away from it.
1: Yeah. So you got into it personally a little bit there. What, What are your personal enduring memories from the bubble and that experience?
0: Well, Dave, I went to every single playoff game from the second round on, and obviously I went to a lot of playoff games before that as well, and a lot of the bubble games, but for me, it was the greatest summer league of all time. You know, you and I love the Las Vegas summer league uh, to be able to just watch, you know, game after game after game and kind of hang out and talk to people and just talk hoops all day long. And this was like summer league, except with hall of famers, right. You know, you know, some, some games there were actually days like the day of the bucks shutdown is a great example where they decided not to take the court on that day. There was three games scheduled Giannis Harden, Chris Paul, Russell Westbrook, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Damian Lillard, were all scheduled to play in one day. And I could just go to those games back to back to back. And so for a basketball junkie, it's like, this is kind of heaven. Now, at the same time, and there was a quirky aspect to being down there in Disney World. I mean, I'm, I'm going for afternoon walks to get my exercise. I'm seeing armadillos. I'm seeing alligators and all this just weird stuff that, you know, again, it just seemed very surreal. But there was a really serious side to it, too, which was the isolation was no joke. I mean, certainly you couldn't drive a car. You know, you couldn't go for a a walk in two miles in any direction or you'd be off campus. You'd be in violation of the health protocols. When we got there, we had to spend a week in a hotel room completely isolated with no outside contact except to get a covid test every afternoon. I mean, that was the extent I couldn't even open a window in that situation. And so I think that really opened my eyes. Uh, you know, on issues of things like confinement and and what that can do to people's mental health. And, you know, for me, the bubble wore on me. I I gained weight. Uh, I slept worse. I noticed my anxiety was up. Uh, I definitely noticed more mood swings. And I I don't think I was alone in that. You heard a number of players, Paul George, Danny Green, and others talking about how it was a very challenging and difficult experience, The the Groundhog Day element being separated from loved ones. And, you know, one thing I always point to, the wildfires in Oregon. You know, my parents are, are there in the Portland area and knowing that everybody was going through these you know, crazy challenges. My brother actually took in a, a single mom and her three children in his backyard living in a tent because they were displaced because of the wildfires. And I'm stuck on a Disney World campus and I can't even walk two miles, let alone fly 3000 miles to go see them. And you put the pandemic on top of it. So it was very emotionally challenging for a lot of people. So I remember the highs and lows. I mean, that's a classic roller coaster situation. Just these amazing buzzer beater moments, the Anthony Davis shot, Damian Lillard's incredible, you know, three or four game stretch there to get the Blazers into the playoffs, uh, the OGN and Obi corner three off that amazing pass from Kyle Lowry, but then also a lot of tough late nights and a, a lot of tough mornings waking up going to get that covid test and saying, "Man, we got to do this all over again."
1: Yeah. Um big picture In your opinion, was the bubble a success? Do you think it it did what it was supposed to do?
0: Absolutely. And to me, the you know, even more than the money side, which was definitely a success because they were able to generate roughly one billion in television revenue or kind of make that back. You have the the public health success, which was zero positive tests for anybody in the bubble for more than three months. And I'll tell you, nobody predicted that coming in. I mean, there were some people who were optimistic, but me even Adam Silver up until the last couple weeks of the bubble was saying oh my favorite emoji is the finger crossed emoji because he didn't want to jinx it and once he showed up for the finals by the way Dave the boss shows up in town everybody's on their best behavior so they ramped up all the regulations you know they made it even stricter than it had already been because they didn't want it to 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 burst a little bit while he was down there Uh, but to me the most important thing and this is just kind of my soft sentimental you know part of me but Crowning a champion was so important. You know, I think about all the hours these guys put into that that season last year, and how down and just empty I felt in March when the season shut down, knowing that and I was sick to my stomach for like the first week, just thinking like, "Hey, Giannis is is he's going for his first title? LeBron's trying to get his fourth. Kawhi Leonard's trying to do it, and the Clippers have you know spent all this money trying to uh, co- uh, construct this super team." And it's just not going to have a payoff. We're not going to know how the story ends. It's like going to a movie and, you know, it's you know, it's enriching and thrilling. And then halfway through, they just, you know, pull the projector off. And it's like, wait a minute, what? You know, that's just a terrible feeling. And so I was so glad that there was enough internal motivation, both from the players, the owners and, and the league to get that done. Because again, it goes back to the history the 73 first seasons of the NBA all had a champion crown. There was never a situation in league history where they didn't have you know, that, that trophy presentation at the end of it. And so to, when it happened, I kind of compare the, the final celebration. Even though we're in this empty building, I compare it to sort of a half New Year's Eve party, half college graduation, because I got sprayed with champagne by LeBron James. There's pretty funny pictures of me in the book where I'm just doused with champagne. And these guys were just looking for anybody to spray because there was nobody else around. So we were easy targets, you know. Uh, But there was also the sensation, not only did they win the championship, but they were going to be free to go home. They survived. They conquered this test. Right. And I will always remember, and I've been at a bunch of different uh, title celebrations over the years, but I think that one's going to be the most memorable for the rest of my career. I, I can't imagine something topping it because it was this amazing feeling of relief. And by the way, there were some media members who had their little black cars, you know, the the safe cars to take them to the airport or to take them to take them home. They were arriving within like two hours after the end of that game. Right. So, I mean, the people were not wasting time getting out of there. And the next morning, I remember walking around the Disney World campus, just kind of waiting for my afternoon flight. And it was a ghost town. I mean, I didn't see another person anywhere in sight. And I think that just tells you, again, how challenging it was mentally. And it was mission accomplished. They they handed out the, the trophy. Um, I think they crowned a worthy champion, a team that earned it on the court. And, um, you know, they, they kept the legacy of the league alive. And I was really grateful and just gratified to see that as it was happening.
1: Yeah, I think you've sort of pre-answered the next question. I, I assume that you think that that experience, experiment is not repeatable that uh, that was a a single moment in time that they couldn't have either done it this year or split into conferences and done it in two locations or something. It would too much, too long.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the players, you know, it's interesting because no players died. And the number of players who have had serious side effects actually have a lot of motivation to not talk about it because it could potentially impact their future earnings. I think when you ultimately were like putting it to the players of, you know, do you want to try to do this again and, and do it safely or would you prefer to return to normal? The players were pretty quickly and adamantly saying, hey, we'd rather go back to normal if we can, even if that means stringent rules when we're traveling and everything else, because we just miss our lives, you know, as as one person put it to me after the bubble was over, the owners wanted their stadiums back and the players wanted their lives back. In other words, the owners wanted to be in a situation where they could maximize their revenue, welcome fans back in, and kind of recondition the viewing public to going back to public events as quickly as possible, because that's going to be a transition. You open up the doors, 20,000 people don't just necessarily show up, even if you, you you invite them, right? So I think they were eager to make that progress. And with the players, they just really miss their families. And I think, you know, the comforts of home, Look, Dave, my one bedroom apartment here in L.A. is not that different than my hotel room in Disney World. Imagine what's the luxury some of these players live in. You get the Cribs tours every once in a while and guys like Damian Lillard and LeBron, they're living pretty good. And there were some real compromises they had to be making to live in these Disney World hotels, just like your typical family of four that's going down there for a vacation. Right. So um, I think that was kind of the motivating factor. Now, if you're looking ahead into the future, let's say there was another pandemic. You know, would they be able to run a playoffs in this kind of a situation again? I think they could do it. You know, I think it all comes down to the length of time. Three months to me was about as much, you know, as about as much as they could, you know, bite off. I think longer than that, and it doesn't really feel like it's a, a trip anymore. It starts to feel more like this is your life. Um, so I think six months was untenable. Had the had the vaccines not have come along, had the pandemic continued to rage at the same levels it was at in January, where they're just constantly bumping games. I could have envisioned an alternate universe where they tried to play these playoffs in a bubble again, but I think at this point they won't need to. So, um, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of where I come down on it. I, you know, it's funny. I always say I would go back and cover a playoff bubble again, for sure. As long as I knew how long it would, would last, because that's big for your mental health. You can kind of do the calculations in your head and say, Oh, I'm almost halfway done or, or I'm three quarters of the way through it or whatever else. If it's just indefinite for the whole season, I think that's a really, really tough to, uh, to swallow mentally. But here's the thing. I'm not sure I'd want to go back to Disney World. That's that's the only hang up there because I think I got enough of Disney World. Not really a huge Disney guy. Orlando weather was a lot, you know, ninety-five degree heat, sweltering swamp like conditions. So maybe if they do another bubble they do it they pick a different spot. How about that?
1: <laughs> there you go. So that's it's interesting. You bring up something that we've hit on the site several times over the last year and a half now. Uh, and we always kind of did, but we've made it more explicit. To think of the participants in these sports as people is critical. And part of it, I think, came to ser- came to light with uh, Kevin Love and his outspoken mental health discussions. And there have been other players as well. But it, it's awfully easy to just view players as objects and the league as entertainment. And in a sense... They almost kind of want you to do that. I mean, they, they want this to be a fun escape. That's what you pay your money for. I get it. At the same time, you have to be able to look underneath and say the cost of a life or the cost of someone's mental health or whatever it is, is, is not worth us being able to vicariously live through a 112-115 score. Uh, what you're saying seems to really bring that out. And I appreciate that. it's that underlying in your book pretty well too, I think.
0: Yeah, no, there's no question. I mean, the, the the things that I look back on was the player reaction to the Jacob Blake shooting by police and then the Breonna Taylor verdict. So when Jacob Blake was shot by police, you really had rage. I mean, you could feel it. Anger. Guys who were really upset who are saying, we're not going to take the court. Something's got to change. You know, this is... You know they're beside themselves, right? It was, it was sort of the reaction, and that's why you ultimately saw a three-day shutdown. The Bucks didn't want to take the court, but it wasn't only them. The Raptors, the Celtics had really serious reservations as well. And in the days that followed, when they put the bubble back together after that shutdown, it was nothing but lopsided blowouts. I think like the first eight or nine games after the shutdown were all ten-plus point blowouts because some of the teams just weren't re- able to re-engage mentally and. And I talk about that a lot in the second half of the book of the different mental challenges some of these teams faced. But I want to contrast that response with what happened with the Breonna Taylor ruling, because when it came out that they weren't really going to press charges against the officers in Louisville, the players had been there longer. There were fewer players left. I believe there was only four teams left at that time. And the situation was different because it wasn't just one cop who shot one person where that feels very personal. It was a system rendering a decision that a lot of people in the bubble didn't agree with. And the feeling was not rage at that point. The feeling was resignation and being beaten down and kind of hopelessness and despair. And guys were having a really hard time making even eye contact, right? They were having a hard time putting full sentences together. And so I think to me, that says something about the differences between those two situations, but they were obviously things that were very important to the players, both of them. But it also says something about the mental grind of being in there because, you know, the, the verdict uh, in Breonna Taylor's situation came about a month later. And I think, you know, the, it had just gone to everybody. You know, it's like they had brought so much energy to this fight um, about Jacob Blake. They had done the kneeling protest. And there was a sensation of like, does any of it matter? We're not making any progress. You know, are we all just doomed to this kind of a life where these kind of things keep happening and you could just really feel it? And to me, that was one of the moments where it really came through the players as humans. And I tried to underline that very carefully in the book because everybody felt it from LeBron right on down the list of of the major players.
1: Yeah. And this idea that has percolated over the last year and a half really since since the the fourth wall got peeled back on some of this that the the fight for justice and the advocacy for professional sports in the united states are inextricable because obviously uh, you know the the racial makeup of professional sports is largely african american but also Professional sports trades on societal trends and economic trends that are very much wrapped up in uh, the the lives of everyday people, that the act of even gathering, I mean, you talk about 20,000 people gathering. Okay. Okay. If that happens at Moda Center, one thing (laughs) occurs. If that happens in protest to a shooting in the street, another thing occurs, right? And the the act of gathering itself is not neutral. And what we cheer and what we chant is not neutral. It's all wrapped up together. And I love this about the sections where you covered that, that you were careful about that. And that you don't kind of let us off the hook because we shouldn't be. And the ability to use your voice to cheer or boo or offer an opinion about this game also kind of halfway mandates, ethically, the ability to to use your ears to listen to the voices of this game, and those two need to be linked.
0: Well, the public spaces thing is such an excellent point because... uh, you know you look back sometimes it's happening in the same place these protests might be outside arenas because these are major you know uh, locations within cities and it that's what i thought was so brilliant about the players response that jacob blake shooting was let's turn these same public public spaces basketball arenas into voting locations right let's flip this thing and bring it all back towards a community as opposed to something that could potentially be divisive and i think You know, that decision, it sounds like, was really influenced by the guidance of uh, Barack Obama. The players had been interested in this voting initiative and focusing on that as a more unifying rather than a politically divisive, um, you know, approach. Instead of just preaching anti-Trump, 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 I think the players were trying to take a more pragmatic, um, you know, messaging and say, hey, look, if we just tell everybody to vote, it's functionally the same thing in terms of what our political interests are. Right. And so uh, to me, that was. Such an amazing thing when you look back at the voting in Milwaukee, Detroit, Philadelphia, and Atlanta, all predominantly black cities, all cities with NBA teams, all cities with outspoken NBA players, either during the bubble experience before or after during the campaign. And you just see the the level of turnout and how crucial those four cities were to swinging the entire national election. Um, you know, it's kind of indisputable that they had a big impact. And so I think that that's another legacy here, too. I'm not giving all the NBA players the credit for electing Joe Biden. I'm just saying they they definitely played their role and they used the bubble um, very powerfully. And I think we're seeing it this year, too. I mean, there was the whole debate. Should the players come together in the bubble and make a, a coordinated political statement as they're going along? Or should they sit the bubble out and have that be their statement? In other words, you know, we're not here to just be your entertainers you know, you know, society is going to have to look somewhere else for leadership. And I think what we've seen this year with the team spread out across the country, with the media access limited and with everything done by Zoom, the response to some of these situations, whether it's the Chauvin trial or some of these other, uh, you know, shootings that have happened recently, to me, it doesn't land quite with the same force that they had during the bubble, because there you just had all these high profile players, one after another, after another, weighing in on it day after day after day. And it was sort of that power of the unity that really came through. And, you know, it wasn't just the the Jersey messages or the little slogans on the court or the kneeling protests beforehand. It was just the the visibility factor of how much attention they got during the playoffs. And, you know, I, I go back to, there's one chapter I kind of close with a, a quote from president Trump himself. And he's talking about the kneeling protests and, um, uh, you know, he thought it was disgraceful to the country and, you know, it's anti-patriotic and going back to some of the criticisms that Colin Kaepernick faced. And he said, it. you know, hey, look, if I'm wrong, I'm going to lose an election. In other words, he's saying this is my wedge issue. Right. And, you know, fast forward three or four months and, and that's exactly what happened. And I think the, the players knew where they stood on these issues. And uh, I think some political figures knew that they stood on the other side of it. And this was playing out. Right in front of us uh, every single night in the bubble it was it was remarkable political theater as well as remarkable basketball simultaneously
1: yeah, incredible complexity there, and also I love the uh, two themes come out of that for me number one, there is so much of the idea of just. Athlete, you know these are just athletes. These are as it, you know. Yes, they're amazing, but then we have to pull them off their pedestal because it's. I think it's the same reason we want to armchair GM, right? Well, I've got to have a voice in this. I've got to be good at something. So what I'm good at is my brain or my opinion. The idea that you're teasing out is that there's actually a lot of very complex, interesting theory going on. In this venue, uh, among professional athletes that is really cutting edge and informative, and the other one that you don't necessarily have to agree with everything that's being formulated or said, but you can't ignore it. And the days when we can just draw that line and say, I'm not listening to you, I'm just consuming you um, we're too close. Uh, there's, there's too much social media interaction. There's too many games right in front of us. They're, they're real people right in front of us. And we're all being challenged to view this relationship in a different way. And I love that.
0: I, I think that, you know, it's a compartmental a compartmentalization 101 here. I mean, just like the clearest example of it would probably be Chris Paul. So Chris Paul's in a situation where, uh, as head of the players' union, he has to put the bubble back together, right? So he's spending multiple days, like I said, calling Obama, meet, conferring with LeBron, holding these meetings, all hands on deck meetings with the players, so everybody can air their concerns. And ultimately, a lot of the concerns the players had were financial. They said, Look, if we leave this bubble, where's our next paycheck going to come? You know, are the owners going to use that force majeure clause, blow up the whole CBA? Now all of our contracts are gone. We're going to have to renegotiate this thing. We're going to have no leverage. And what about these guys who need the paychecks? You know, the younger players, the, the minimum salary veterans. If we just leave this thing, we're leaving these guys out to dry. They're not going to be able to support their families. So you have all these concerns that Chris Paul has to deal with, right? And as soon as the games go back on, the very first day they had games, after the, the three days of negotiations where he's talking with Michael Jordan and the owners committee and the labor committee and all this stuff, Chris Paul has to take the court against his former team, the Houston Rockets, his, you know, former teammate turned rival, James Harden and Russell Westbrook, this guy he was traded for. And, you know, they've, they've kind of developed this own rivalry as well. And now his team is expecting him to, you know, he's the most important player out there. He's the reason why they're in the playoffs and he's got to turn right back around and try to lead them on the court. It's just imagine the mental burden of that. I mean, I, I don't think I'd be sleeping it'd be a lot of sleepless nights. And then knowing that your whole season rides on it and the typical postseason pressure, it's just amazing. And so I came away from this incredibly uh you know with a newfound respect for a lot of the key figures. Uh, and and some of it was basketball related just watching guys like say LeBron or Jamal Murray how they prepare for games because you really get to see it up close there. It was like god uh, these guys have it down to a science. But in the case of a Chris Paul it's just his ability to wear so many different hats as a leader. And to inspire trust in everybody around him, it's a very, very tricky thing and and hard to do. And so many times we're saying, well, this guy can go out there and get his points, but does he make his teammates better? So Chris Paul made his teammates better. He made the Players Association better. He made the whole league better. None of it happens without him. And I'm not sure there's a single other player who could have done what he did.
1: Yeah. It's amazing. And also the intricacy, again, that you bring up. And we get some of this because, you know, you can watch practices and what have you, and you see how players are really coached. And people don't understand. We, you know, you make 50,000 foot pronouncements. Oh, this guy should play more. It's, it's not really about that. It's literally inches on the court and the position of your hands and where your eyes are and what happens in this, this, and the idea that that was cranked up to 11 and became not just basketball, which it definitely was because new environment, new mm-hmm. rules, new whatever, but also interpersonal, societal. What a fascinating... What would you say, crux or crucible, in which to operate and which to witness on your part?
0: Yeah, I mean that's I, why I will say it's probably the most memorable thing ever, and why I think the relief was so big by the end of it once they got through. I mean the phrase that Adam Silver used, you know, was enormous sacrifices when he came for the finals and kind of told all the players that. And one other detail that I love was that Michelle Roberts, the union's head, lived in the bubble for the entire time, you know, and she was kind of sitting up poolside, just, Hey, if any players want to come and talk to me about how things are going, are they worried about health? Do they have teammate drama? Do they have interest in post-playing career um, opportunities? And and all those kinds of questions that players might have, she would just kind of sit by the pool and, and let people come through and kind of hold court almost as like this godmother-like figure, I think, for them. And I think that uh, her presence, you know, it kind of just symbolized how, the players had to be in this together. There really did have to be a lot of solidarity. And I do think that some of the angst that came out of the shutdown when the Bucks made their decision not to take the court was that some other players felt like, hey, you did this without consulting us. We would have all gladly, you know, if you had brought this to our attention, maybe we all could have done it together and sent an even bigger message. Or, you know, at least we wouldn't have been blindsided and those kinds of questions. But, you know, it was it was such a charged atmosphere life was going so fast down there. I mean, it's just day after day, these huge headlines. And I mean, even the, the shutdown unfolded so rapidly where, you know, the night before I had asked doc rivers, like, what's your message to the players, you know, who are considering a boycott because he had been the coach of the Clippers when they considered their boycott about Donald Sterling's comments uh, that were sort of racist, Um, not sort of racist. They were very racist uh, that were caught on tape back in uh, 2014 And Doc Rivers, when I asked the question, kind of looked at me twice, gave his answer, thought about it, and then doubled back to me. And he was like, you know what, if the players do want to, you know, take the court or not take the court, I'm with the players. I support them. And like, I could tell it was turning in his, you know, in his mind after a huge win that they had just had their best win of the entire playoffs. And it's starting to kind of, you know, the, the wheels were turning like, oh, this could be getting more serious. Like, oh, wait a minute, this could actually happen. And so. Um, you know, that was, there was just a constant evolution throughout the the process. You kind of never knew what the next day would bring, even though the basics of your day were always the same, go get tested, go hop on that shuttle bus to go to the gym. Don't talk to anyone. Don't eat, you know, you can talk to some people, but don't eat together indoors, you know, keep your spacing, make sure you're wearing your mask. I mean, there was a regimen in nature to life. And yet there was this great unpredictability in terms of the playoffs themselves, but also the offboard stuff
1: yeah I would love to dive into that more. We're going to run out of time in terms of like the idea of not even having a social network of eating together everywhere you go. you find someone to eat with that's where you bond like this idea of being stuck together, crammed in the same place with the same people over and over again that you cannot bond with is' <laughs> that's got to, that has to have been fascinating.
0: Well, it was weird. I mean, look, I'm an introvert myself. So I actually think like I almost view myself as being built for the bubble because I do a lot of podcasts and I do a lot of writing and I could do both of those things by myself in a hotel room. So it really didn't bother me. But I know people who are more extroverted. were just having the toughest, toughest time with it because, um, you know, first of all, there weren't that many people. And they're all competitors. I mean, even among the media, right? So you don't want to be sitting around and having this, you know, long, luxurious lunch. And then meanwhile, somebody else is getting the scoop, right? So um, it was uh, interesting dynamics on that as well. Uh, But I think it was, again, harder on the players. I mean, they couldn't shower at the arenas there. They had to go back to their hotel rooms to shower Um, in terms of how long they could meet, how long, where they were having practices. All of that was very carefully regulated as well. And, you know, their bonding time was also limited. And, you know, they were encouraged not to spend a lot of time with op- t- uh, players from opposing teams. And in fact, you know, there was regulations, you know, kind of preventing that type of contact as much as possible. So if you had a buddy on the other team, it's like, you know, you might be able to go fishing with him outdoors and stay six feet apart. But, you know, that might be it. You know, you, you couldn't have your normal, uh, you know, your normal like break bread game. you know, good game. Let's talk about it. Uh, type of situation. I mean, that was, you know, it was kind of against the rules.
1: Yeah, I mean, it could be a window also for listeners into people think coaching is an easy job. Little, it's a different situation, but a microcosm of a locker room, and not everybody's on the same page. And you can't not one solution will work for everybody. And how do you balance that out? But let's let's actually flip to that side because you talked about solidarity a minute ago, and we've talked about players, but there was not necessarily agreement among all NBA franchises about how this should go. In fact, you mentioned that the Trailblazers actually were the lone no vote for the way things proceeded. Uh, talk a little bit about what was at stake for various franchises and why did Portland fall out the way they did?
0: Well, it, it just really came down to standings and what was your best interest, right? So if you were one of the high seeds, you didn't really care how many teams they brought because, you know, if, you, if it was a sh- shorter, smaller bracket, fine. You know, you're, you knew you were going to be in there. And so, okay, whatever. Let's just get through this process as quickly as possible. Now, if you were a mid-tier team and you were looking to make the playoffs and, you know, like in Portland's case, try to continue a playoff streak. Well, and you have a competitor like Damian Lillard as your leader. Well, yeah, you want to be in there. You want to take your shot. You know, give us an opportunity to do it. If you're a really bad team like the Golden State Warriors already been eliminated what is the point of going down to Disney World, even if it's only for a month and a half? We have nothing to gain. What if we get sick? We've already sent our players home on summer break, practically. And, you know, one other example of that, Minnesota Timberwolves. I mean, they're reeling from Carl Anthony Towns' mother's death. Now you want to throw them down in Disney World for six weeks and say, yeah, you've got to go through these games, which are not going to change your status whatsoever. And I think ultimately the the problem was some of the owners of teams that really didn't have – any shot at a title, thought, well, wait a minute. If we can go down there and play our games, we can fulfill our local television contracts, which say you've got to play at least 70 regular season games. If we make the playoffs, we can get a couple you know, get some extra revenue from the playoff games, and maybe we can even help ourselves positioning in free agency, you know, whenever free agency hits, right? So you had some owners, even if their teams didn't necessarily want to go, who were like pretty gung-ho about trying to get down there and, and making it happen. And from the NBA side, They wanted to make it as big as possible with, you know, without becoming unwieldy. And they wanted to make sure that all the teams down there had a reason to go. Right. And so you saw it with Phoenix. I mean, they were on the complete outskirts, but they went 8-0 and they came one result short of making that play in the Western Conference. So they decided to kind of give everybody incentive to win and to compete. And of course, they designed it to put as many games as they could possibly host as possible to generate as much money as possible. Now, Portland was an interesting situation because, you know, they wanted to be down there. It wasn't like they were voting against going to the bubble. They just wanted to have a slightly smaller field because that would have given them an advantage, uh, you know, higher odds of making that play in round because there's just fewer teams to compete with. Right. And so they were just, you know, purely voting in their own personal best interest of, well, if they only bring 20 teams instead of 22, we're going to have a better shot at uh, at getting in there. So it wasn't some big protest vote. It wasn't, you know, some moral uh, high ground of, oh, we don't think this is going to be safe. It was it was more can we sneak in? And as we found out, you know, ultimately they got in with the 22 teams anyway, thanks to Willard's just incredible uh, week long push of these gigantic scoring uh, explosions with the shot that hit the back rim and bounced, you know, Eight feet up and he had media members, crusty old media members sitting courtside, Dave, going, whoa, has that ball dropped back down through the rim. So uh, I'll never forget that moment. But, um, you know, ultimately, they f- it was a grand compromise is, is the best way to look at it. I mean, they went through just rounds and rounds of different debates about how to do it. And they got a really good playing tournament of, out of it in the Western Conference. You know, it was it was fun. It was competitive. Teams were locked in and going for it. And so I would say that part actually worked. And we'll see if the play in this season works as well as that one. I'm not totally convinced it will, but we're gonna to have to wait and see on that. Um but uh at twenty-two, I was proven wrong. I thought it should be a smaller field, keep it simple. You know, these first round series usually aren't very competitive, so just bring sixteen teams, get in and get out. And they added some layers to it and they were proven correct.
1: Yeah, I thought they should be down to four personally. I thought just screw really? it, and let let two. Two from each conference go, because that's what it was, who it was coming down to. Turns out I was wrong about that, too, because Miami snuck in. I don't think they were top <laughs> two at that point. But, yeah, I mean, look, uh, nothing but credit to the NBA about the way that turned out. Uh, and I, I think, I. long story short, I don't think it could have gone much better. Do you? I mean, I, with all the variables involved and all the agendas involved, that they pretty much hit it out of the park.
0: The only thing they couldn't control was the health of the star players who weren't able to compete, right? So it would have been a better uh, playoffs and it would have been a more memorable playoffs had Kevin Durant been healthy, had Steph Curry and Clay Thompson been healthy all year, so they were a playoff team, and had the Miami Heat stayed healthy in the finals, right? I think we would have had a more competitive finals and had maybe Giannis not sprained his ankle in that second round series. I mean, Miami looked like it was poised to win anyways, but that was sort of the you know, the the checkmate move in that series, right? So those things were beyond the NBA's control. And, you know, kind of in place of some of those stars who got injured, we had new guys, you know, pop up and and really step forward. Uh, I think everybody would point to Jamal Murray for Denver, of course. I think Jokic really burnished his reputation. Anthony Davis got his first championship ring um, in the Eastern Conference. He had a, an amazing game by Tyler Hero and a, and a decent postseason from him overall. But also guys like Jason Tatum, Um, And Jalen Brown taking the the next step forward in their respective careers as well. So I think from an execution standpoint, and I I actually told the NBA this on our way out of the bubble, I said, I don't, you know, I love to nitpick. I'm like a professional nitpicker. I'm not sure from a logistics, from an event planning, from a health standpoint, I'm not sure I would have changed anything, really. I mean, because they did have that perfect record to justify all of it. And because they did crown a champion who I don't think actually faced that much asterisk talk after it happened, that was a huge debate going in. But I think once the Lakers go 16 and six through the postseason, LeBron is cranking it up to six gear. in some of these games, Anthony Davis is sensational the whole way through. It was very hard to say, Oh, they don't deserve it. Or this doesn't count, especially because those playoffs were played at a very high level. I mean, there was great basketball start to finish, especially in the Western conference, I should say, you know, uh, some of these uh, Eastern conference first round series were quite as good, but, it was very entertaining, um, dramatic basketball, especially considering the circumstances with no fans. And so I think that just speaks to the, the NBA as well. They deserve credit for not only crowning a champion, but crowning a worthy champion that was respected by basically everybody.
1: Yeah, the league knows what it's doing at this point. I think it, it's safe. To, at least I am a convert. I, I, and I've generally thought they've been pretty good, but I, I think they came through. Now, do the Trailblazers know what they're doing? Before we leave here, let's shift. Uh of course, since you've been here, the entire Lillard era has happened, which you've watched nationally. <laughs> you know, it's obvious that Dame transcends everything. By the way, is he the greatest trailblazer ever at this point for you?
0: Ooh, ooh you're not giving me any easy questions today, Dave. Um, I tend to be in the very deferential to history camp. Um, I tend to look at total body of work total impact i tend to really favor postseason deep postseason success and so i think if i had to do it right now this very instant personally i would probably still go clyde but i think it's getting harder and harder to make that argument and i think that when he retires it will not be a conversation i guess i'd put it that way he has so much high level basketball left in him like, look at what Steph's doing right now at, at, you know, a few years older than Dame. Dame's going to be operating at the same level in a few years. There's no doubt in my mind. So I would still have Dame probably in that second spot. But that's because I really, you know, kind of goes back to my rankings of the top 100 players. I always want someone to steal that top, top spot. I don't want to just give it. And I, I think that, you know, Dame is in the process of stealing it right now. Um, or he's in the process of earning it, I, I probably should say. But I'm not sure he's completely taken it. Where do you come down?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think exactly the same place you do. And I think actually this season has really pushed him neck and neck with Drexler for me, despite the lack of postseason success, because every time the Blazers n- need to call on him, he's there every time. I mean, does, so CJ McCollum goes down. Yusuf Nurkic comes back out of shape and then goes down. And here's Dame scoring 30. And yes, the the schedule was easier, but that doesn't obviate the 30 and 20 record that the Blazers had after 50 games, which is they've done worse. I mean, they, they, they've done worse with a full roster. And he's just at the flower, the peak of his uh, prime. And it is... Amazing. Uh, He he has to be mentioned in the same voice as Drexler. Uh, Very different players. And Dame is, by the way, Dame is much better for this era than Clyde would be for this era.
0: Uh, Oh, no no question about that. And I would also say that of which player is going to remember for having greater influence, I think that that, uh, Damian will be remembered as having greater influence because when we say what's the key development from the last five years of the NBA. It's the three point shot. And then the deeper three point shot. And then the off the dribble three point shot and the sidestep three point shot and the moon ball from near half court three pointers. And Damien is right on that cutting edge, forcing teams to completely play junk defenses to kind of handle him. He's right there with Stephen Curry. And, you know, Steph's always going to get most of that attention, but you know, when we look back on ten years and, and you know, in ten years and say, okay, well, who are the guys who are really driving the strategic changes? I mean, Dame's going to be mentioned second, I think, in that in that um, you know category. Harden as well, in terms of his sidestep and innovations with the three pointers too. But um, this season's been crazy. The clutch stuff. I hope people don't take it for granted because this is not how it's supposed to go. Dave. You're not just supposed to be able to give the ball to somebody and who wins every single close game three nights a week. It's it's completely like unprecedented i I can't remember a guy doing it as regularly as he does it and he makes it look routine and it's not routine and i and i hope that everybody's appreciated i'm sure the blazers fans are um and and maybe the national people have caught on as well but that was a story in the bubble too it's like they needed you know they needed every single point he gave them for the last three or four games of that bubble run after he missed those free throws against the clippers and they heckled him it was like all right well You just poke the bear. Good luck with that plan, Uh, Clippers, and and Dame's going to come through. And his reliability is huge. Um,
1: There are no Blazers Blazers analogs to him, to what you just described. You have to go to Jordan. You have to go to Kobe and a few of the other just really, I mean, Larry Bird. Now, I'm not saying Dame is them because they brought a lot more in other ways, right? And obviously they have rings. But – Uh, in terms of that clutch mentality of that don't poke the bear of you're going to give it to this guy and he's going to come through. You're a lot closer to them than you are to anyone who's ever put on Portland's uniform.
0: 100%. And that's why I thought when the Clippers were mocking him for those missed free throws, I'm like, guys, do you have any context to what you're thinking? And I loved how quickly Dame shot back and was like, you know, Beverly, I eliminated you from the playoffs in 2014. And, you know, Paul George, I eliminated you from the playoffs in 2019. But the other incredible thing was, didn't he go something like 31 for 32 on free throws the next four games to like kind of help Portland reach the playoffs? It's like this guy is money from the free throw line as well. You know, if you're going to give anybody the basketball with two free throws to win a game in the entire league, you know, he's probably your first or second pick. You know, again, right there with Steph. And, um, you know, you know, he's not going to. It's it's not really a matter of choking or whatever else they, they were trying to say. It's just crazy. So Well and um, he didn't I,
1: man, he didn't miss one like the entire first part of this season, if I recall correctly. <laughs> I mean he just like that streak continued. He just and, and that's his thing, is that every time you put a challenge in front of him, not only does he clear that hurdle? he eclipses it. He doesn't even land back on the same plane that he jumped from. He is on a, he's on another planet. The only one that he hasn't really been able to step up to, I think, is defense. And I think that's as much of a product of the team around him. I, I don't think he's expected to be a premier defender. He's never going to be. When he's surrounded by really good defenders, he actually looks pretty passable. But when he's exposed, that's just kind of not there in the same way.
0: No, there's no question there. Um, You know, with LaMarcus Aldridge retiring here this past week, it it made me think back to his free agency decision to leave Portland for San Antonio. And there was a question at that time, like, is Dame up to the task here? Like, is he ready to be a franchise player? Um, Obviously, he was this bubbling star at that stage of his career. But until you've seen a guy do it, there's going to be those questions. And also, when you lose Aldridge in free agency for nothing, it's not like there's this big trade where you're sending Aldridge out and you're getting a couple of pieces in return, but you're completely revamping the core around him. Remember the prognosticators and the, uh, and the computers picking Portland that next year to win what, like less than 30 games or something like that. I mean, they, they really undershot where the Blazers actually wound up being um, almost solely because of Damian Lillard again, by the way, you know, five, six years ago as well. So um, he's been doing it for a long time. And when Aldridge retired, it just made me think how that question about Lillard has been gone for so long. Like he is one of the most trustworthy franchise players in the entire league. Um, the fact that he's never himself looked out anywhere in free agency, he's always been loyal. He's, you know, said it time and time again, again, that's one of those things where you should not take that for granted. You should, you know, be so thrilled with that because it just makes everything else easier. And it, and it keeps that playoff streak alive knowing you're going to have here, him here for the rest of his prime. Um, if not his entire career. So, um, I just thought it was one of those touchstone moments with Aldridge where, uh, you know, when he left, it seemed like, Oh, this whole thing is going to fall apart. And in reality, you know, Portland arguably had more success than San Antonio did over the next five, six uh, years. When you're, you're, you're taking into account that Western conference finals trip and just the consistency that Lillard's, you know, led with, it's, it's been pretty crazy. I don't think a lot of people saw that coming. I certainly didn't, you know, I thought Aldridge was going to join a, a potential dynasty and him and Kawhi were going to be in the finals, you know, or or the conference finals at least year after year. And it just didn't play out that way.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that's the big question. I don't know how much you're able to answer this, but, Okay, why hasn't it gotten better? I think everybody agrees that in 2015-16, they absolutely exceeded their potential. It was happy time. They were throwing in everybody's faces, basically. Yeah, you predicted this and we did that. And the that we did is about 45 wins. And that's really awesome for who we are. Fast forward now. And they're a little better than that. And they did have that one conference finals run, but they're tangibly not in a much different position now six years after when Lillard, by the way, I would argue is better now. I mean, Lillard is Oh yeah. he's he not only took a step up from 2014 to 2015, he's taken that same step up from 2015 to 2021. So he's, I, I agree. Yeah. So why, what's go? what's going on? Why, why are we still replaying the, the greatest hits here? And, you know, ending up kind of like the, uh, you know, I don't know, nitty gritty dirt band who was good, but not great. Instead of ABBA who is absolutely taking over the world.
0: Well, I think that you've got to look at a couple of things. I mean, first of all, his, his co-star CJ McCollum is very good, but not, A top 15 player in his own right and when you're dealing with super teams that are putting together two or three or sometimes four top 10 or top 15 players on the same roster and you've got one and you've got another guy who's maybe in that top 20 or 25 range it's just going to be a natural you know you're kind of landing in that pecking order in a different spot and i think that they've also just been a little snake bin on that third that third player as well i mean For a while there, it seemed like Nurkic was going to be, you know, potentially an all-star level center where you can look at him and say, well, if he was in the Eastern Conference, he might be the best center besides a Joel Embiid or a Bam Adebayo, right? And just the in and out with his health and not being able to really develop that continuity night after night so you can go on a big run to to me has definitely, (laughs) excuse me, has held them back from reaching their, you know, complete ceiling with this group. But I think some of the other things are a little bit outside of, you know, certainly Lillard's control. When you have two big max level contracts, it's very difficult to get that third max level player. And if you do it, you have to assume a lot of risk. And that's what Milwaukee did this year, going to make the Drew holiday trade, where you're sending out all of your future draft picks. You're going to commit a gigantic, you know, $160 million contract to him, you know, coming up here that he just recently signed. It's going to start next season. And that's going to make it very difficult to uh, build out your depth around your top three guys. And they're going to have issues with their bench. Milwaukee will for the next couple of years going forward. And Portland's tried to take a little bit of a different model. They've said, hey, we're not going to have three giant contracts. We're going to spread the money around to, you know, different types of players. We're going to keep cycling the wings. You know, we're going to go from Alan Crabb to, uh, you know, Derry Trent Jr. And now to Norman Powell. And if he leaves and now to somebody else, and you're going to try try to play that game around your stars and just stay relevant. And I think that the biggest trick is in the NBA, unfortunately, like the patient model of building and, and, you know, balanced level playing field with the star talent is just not there. You know, it's all about short-term instant gratification. It's about Harden forcing his way to Brooklyn, Anthony Davis forcing his way to the Lakers. And it's hard to con- convince people to force their way to Portland as much as I love Portland. And I know you love Portland. Um, you know, for, for NBA star level players, it's never been that type of destination. So I think that those are some of the kind of the macro factors that have held them back. But, um, you know, I think a lot of people here this season in particular would point to the injuries. I know I've heard Dame talk about that as well. And, you know, I still would question what would their ceiling be, even if completely healthy, I don't think they would be the second worst defensive team, but they still might be so bad defensively that they couldn't quite actually be elite. Um, overall as a team and, and that could you know be another factor where um you know it, it just goes back to your personnel do you have enough uh plus defenders in your rotation to surround your guards with you know can you get by playing guys like Mello and Cantor together for long stretches without that just you know being a complete eyesore i think those are kind of unsolvable questions here for this particular year but i think big picture it's more about the way stars operate these days than anything else
1: All right. Well, we know you have to run. I certainly appreciate you being here. Give us where can we find you and talk about the book? Where can we get it and when and how?
0: Yeah, so Bubble Ball is my account from March to basically October of last year from the shutdown all the way through to the championship celebration. It's on Amazon. It is on Barnes and Noble. It's at Powell's um, and it it will be officially on sale May 4th, but you can pre-order now and they'll ship it out to you ASAP. Um, if you want a preview of the book, you can find me on Instagram at Ben.golliver and I have a little video just kind of unveiling uh, the book and some of its key features. And uh, you can also find me on Twitter at BenGoliver. And, of course, I'm doing all my writing at TheWashingtonPost.com slash sports.
1: Excellent. Well, Ben, uh, we need to do this together soon uh you know maybe in a couple of months after the season is over whatever we can talk more about Blazers Edge stuff which i'm sure people want to hear about but i know you've got another interview we're going to let you go for that we appreciate you being here very much
0: well thanks for having me dave and thanks for everything over the years i'm glad the book got to you uh, cuz you were one of the first people i had on my list to make sure got a copy so you you're probably like one of the first 10 in the world who can say that they uh, have read it so it, i'm just you know very appreciative and the gratitude has been overflowing because, you know, you, you this kind of a thing makes you look back on how you started and just, you know, we had a really, really, really good time. At least I did. Hopefully I didn't drive you too crazy back in my, uh, my earlier, uh, you know. <laughs> No. earlier more uh energetic mid-20s days but uh, was, I, i'm always so grateful for you and the, and the readers as well
1: it was absolutely wonderful and we have a staff of i think 25 now because of you well, you were one that, you know you were you were the first that's crazy so. yeah i know isn't it well fun, so.
0: 25 people well the name I, it follows me everywhere people are always asking me about blazer's edge still to this day and i think that's like the coolest part about it is that the site just continues to evolve and grow and uh, so I appreciate you having me on.
1: All right, Ben, take care. Uh, again, that is uh, Bubble Ball and look for it on Amazon and Powell's and Barnes & Noble and everywhere finer books are sold. For Ben Golliver, I'm Dave Deckard. We'll see you next time.